Hey, welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. Scott Linden here. Thanks for joining me. And thanks for all the kind comments about that uh, tailgate check podcast recently. Appreciate that a lot. Glad to be of assistance. Anyway, we have another great, well, assistance, if you will, uh, this week. Jeff Funky rejoins us after too long away from the Upland Nation podcast. Jeff is a friend He's the guy I get my wire hairs from. Chucker Hunter, versatile dog trainer and breeder. This guy knows his stuff. He lives in Chucker country, and he spends way more time there than he deserves to. But we benefit from it. So stick around if you're looking for hunting hints, tips, dog training advice. Jeff will have it for you. I'll have a little bit of my own when it comes to feeding on your next road trip. That is something of great interest to many of you, I'm sure. We'll dig deep into that, pardon the pun. And then we'll talk about why you go hunting. Some photographic essays. Yeah, on a podcast. It's all coming up. We're made possible by Sage and Breaker Gun Care Products, Pointer Shotguns, Mid-Valley Clays and Shooting School, Trulock Choke Tubes, MidwayUSA.com, Pro Plan Sport from Purina, and Hi-Viz Shooting Systems. Well, here at the home ranch, um, still getting up early, but we're still getting a freezing night once in a while. have to break the ice on the horse trough, but it sure makes for early morning runs uh, around here, at least on the high desert. Not a big deal. We're getting in our miles, and that's what matters. Uh, Working on other things as well, both in the yard and out in the field. Still on steadiness, but also... Uh, as I've lamented over the last few weeks, getting Flick to mark retrieves a little bit better. And, you know, we're making a little progress. It's still a little strange, and I'm kicking myself for having uh, kind of uh, fallen into a rut and caused him to think every dead bird, every bumper, everything I throw falls at the same distance from him. So I've tried a few things. You've seen the retriever guys. They'll put their hand over the dog's head and kind of point his eyes in the right direction. Well, I tried that for a while, and Flick was just not going for it. So my, I moved my hand over to the left side of his head so that he could, I could literally push his hand, just kind of nudge his head a little bit toward where the bird or bumper was going to fall. That seems to work for me. It guides his eyes, it guides his nose, and then when I send him, at least he's starting in the right direction. (sighs) Long process. Uh, If I can think about it, I'll ask Jeff Funky about it later on in the podcast. He'll probably have a a brilliant solution that I wish I'd thought of myself. Anyway, it's working for us, and um, I'll keep you posted. How about you? Well, you all are big on what I've been talking about for quite a while. And, you know, I ask this every year in our annual Upland Nation Index survey. Why do you go hunting? And uh, this time around on social media, I posted an incredible sunset of, uh, oh, the, the, you know, the, the pines, the junipers, and the aspens out back are, are silhouetted against it. There's a there's a blue sky, kind of an indigo blue sky in the corner, and then then some really 
dimensional, uh, almost thunderheads next to that. And then on top of all of that, a glow from maybe golden and yellowish glow that just fades up into the atmosphere. That was, you know, those are the kind of things we see on a hunting trip. But I asked you all as well, because I think it's important uh, to give you a chance to share once in a while and hear some of your responses. Jerry Steeman says, well, first, the picture is of a, a, a beautiful German shorthair looking out the passenger side window. He says, I hunt because of this GSP. She's everything to me. And um, thank you, Jim Maroney, for the compliment on the photograph. Yeah, I get lucky once in a while. Carlos Lopez says, it's part of how I keep the good memories of friends and family alive, share them with my kids and their friends. Yeah, there's uh, what I'm guessing, Carlos, is a daughter of yours sitting on the tailgate. She's got her probably her first gun in her hands and holding it safely and looks like she's got a big smile uh, must have had a great time and uh, probably looking forward to this fall bruce wondrack says for a sea of grass with my girl on point i love the big walk and there she is on point beautiful setter uh, mainly white with a lot of, I'll call it ticking. Uh, we might debate that a little bit. Solid as a rock in, in uh, waist-high tall grass. It, beautiful setting. I might even recognize part of that. Keith Clayton shows me a sunrise picture with um, you know unbelievable orange and yellow clouds of filling the sky beyond a silhouetted old gnarled probably fruit tree of some sort you know you can get all of these on the facebook page just go to wing shooting usa uh in facebook and you'll get all these pictures there's so many good ones there's a tangle of uh aspen and uh and probably some woodcock yeah rc phillips thanks for that picture there's a chucker shot uh david gilbertson great to see um great to see you out and about doing that sort of thing and and uh, always always good to see an action shot like yours don williams there's a handler there's a dog there's a dog looking up there's a shooter there is a feather cloud and a bird falling hey sounds like wing shooting usa tv well i'm glad to see all of those and more thank you very much and which reminds me wing shooting usa is back yeah, we're on the Outdoor American Network, so if you want to learn more about that, go to findbirdhuntingspots.com, look for the tab that says Wing Shooting USA. We're on all summer, July through September. You can get a station list and other ways to get it on uh, smart TVs, among other things, all at findbirdhuntingspots.com. And it's all brought to you by MidwayUSA.com. Just about anything you'll need for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, uh, from dummy launchers to boots to, uh, well, 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 I'll call them briar pants, uh, to ammo. Yeah, lots of ammo. This time of year, that's what I'm using them for, and I sure appreciate their support. And their Nitro Express shipping. Yeah, they work really hard to get that stuff out to you fast. And um, they're one of us. Uh, Larry Potterfield is a life, 
long member of the NRA, big supporter of the shooting sports, in particular youth shooting sports. Support them because they support us. It's all at MidwayUSA.com. And if you want to support your dog, feed him or her Purina Pro Plan Sport. It is specifically designed for active, hardworking dogs. And, you know, they do all the research. If you're looking for research on canine performance, especially field dog performance, that's where you're going to get it. Purina Pro Plan Sport. That, in fact, here's the, uh, the web address is ProPlansport.com. From there, you can do all your own due diligence. If you're looking for a specific formula, Whatever stage your hunting dog is at in life, from puppy to senior specific formulas, they're all available. Purina Pro Plan Sport Performance. Learn more at ProPlansport.com. Well, we don't do this enough, and we certainly don't do it enough in the field, but uh, Jeff Funky with Three Devils Kennel is back with me. You know, Jeff, from way back, uh, lots of the dogs I've had over the years have come from Jeff's kennel. Jeff and I met uh, through the North American Versatile Hunting Dog Association. He's uh, still active in a lot of training and testing and things like that. We'll talk about that, among other things. From Nampa, Idaho, Jeff, welcome back to the Upland Nation podcast. Yeah, hi, Scott. Thanks for having me back. And like here, we, you know, we share the same geography. I guess that's the easiest way to put it. You're, you're putting up with summer just like me. We're getting there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's a little easier for me with one dog than it is with you. Um, what You know, we'll talk about warm weather and, and multiple dogs and all that. But first, just let's, let's get a little backstory on Three Devils Kennel. Well, our, as far as the training, uh, I've had, I've had, I got my first wire here in 1986, but uh, I worked, I, I had graduated from University of Idaho and started working for what is now Wells Fargo Bank. I was in uh, business banking, commercial, commercial banking and lending, that sort of thing, and uh, that was at a time when I think it was a savings and loan crisis and the banks weren't doing too well and things got a little bit ugly. So uh, my wife and I decided, well, you always like training dogs. Why don't you just train dogs? And that was 1998. Opened, uh, opened the business full time and started training dogs full time in 1998 and um, been busy, busy, busy ever since. Well, you know, you're busy for a good reason. You turn out good dogs, you train good dogs, you breed good dogs. There's got to be a real challenge to that. Uh, on the breeding side, exactly, uh, not exactly, but generally speaking, wh what are the things you have to most monitor? You know, I was looking at some of your dog's pedigrees just this morning, and my own, of course, is in there. But tell me a little bit more about the genetic side of how you handle that. Well, there's the the base. I, I guess you know to to really go back when I first got into this, there were a lot more genetic problems than what we have now, and and we've paid pretty close 
attention to that. And um, we've also, through trial and error, got lucky over time and ended up producing litters and groups of dogs that were very clean genetically. And we were able to build on that. And the, the challenge for the for the new the newer breeder is that you just don't have the data and there's no real you know for all the clubs that are out there there's nobody that I'm aware of that really puts all that that data into one place and there's also a timing issue with it because you don't really have the data until many years down the road so I can go back on my pedigrees, and I, I keep all of my pedigrees on something called Breeder's Assistant. And I know a lot of people use Breedmate, and from what I can understand, I think Breeder's Assistant is um, quite a bit more complex and has quite a bit more capability. Uh-huh. But I can go back on that, and I can look at lines of dogs, and we'll see certain litters, certain dogs that will show up in, you know, in an eight, 10 generation pedigree, they'll show up, you know, 10, 12, 16 times. And you might realize that that is something special. And the reason that that dog shows up that many times is because it was a quality producer and it didn't produce genetic problems. And you can, by the same token, flip side of that, you can, you can find dogs that created problems. Um, so that's, I'm lucky I have, I have the ability to do that, but all, all the other basic tests that you can run on a dog, you can see for yourself yeah, if there's a yeah, problem. Yeah. And of course, nowadays we have DNA with things like, um, Embark veterinary and they test for several hundred different defects. So that, that helps as well. Do you, <clears throat> You you said clean uh, pedigree or, or you know clean genetics, if you will. What are the biggest um, red flags in in that area that people need to keep an eye out for? Well, uh, physically, um, you know, you got teeth problems. Uh, most often in a wire hair, you're going to see undershot. Um, and again, it's not that information is not on a lot of pedigrees. You yeah, yeah. Kind of know know it. it. If the dog was not the tested, you can you can find that um, eyes um, and thyroid in in the wire hair. Um, those those are probably the the biggest ones um, that will that will just pop up because they're they're complex genetically to to try and deal with. Yeah, I can imagine. And, you know, thanks for uh, for being so diligent about it. I sure have appreciated it over the years. And uh, it seems to be working here. Let's jump into the chucker season. Uh, I'm getting ready for it and laying plans for, uh, well, up and down the west. And, in fact, even a little bit farther south than most people go. But uh, when you're preparing dogs for, you know, the, the serious hunting uh, that that ends up being a chucker hunt, whether it's one day or multi-day. What are some of the conditioning things uh, you're doing that we might want to start doing right about now? Well, um, aside from your your training and and 
you know, during the summertime, you can always utilize, uh, that's the nice thing about the wire, you can utilize the water work and that sort of thing to help with your conditioning. But there, there is no substitute for running the dogs in the type of terrain that you're going to be running in. And uh, some, some states have game laws that might prohibit that, um, at least for a certain period of time. But um, whether you're whether you're using them, I know a lot of people nowadays will use a mountain bike uh, this time of year, and that way you can get the coverage in. We, I will use both a mountain bike and, you know, we use a, a quad um, to, to start to gently get them into, into shape. And then, um, but that last month before hunting season, if you want them to be at their peak, you need to, you need to go climb the hills with them. And that's, no, no substitute for that. I was thinking about that as I was climbing a hill this morning. I'm thinking, you know, for athletes, human athletes, um, there's a term for it. And I've, of course, I'm blanking out on what it is. But uh, to do well at a sport, you need to do that sport. And it just starts making all the sense in the world. And I was looking at the ground thinking, you know, there's not enough rocks on this ground. I got to go over there instead. Start yeah. walking on that. Um, there, there's one, uh, I mean, it's you running them on a trail or a flat surface doesn't, doesn't quite cut it. And I have one, one friend that's religious about a month before hunting season, he'll go hike those trails and, by far and away, his dogs always outshine not only mine, but everybody else's because he, he does it every day. Oh, no doubt about it. Do you do anything in particular to keep care of your dog's feet uh, during or before the season? That is, you know, I, I'm big on that, and I've got my own thoughts. But I, I'm, I'm really curious. You have to handle however many dogs times four all season, for example. Yeah, what, what yeah I have... I have a I have a neat setup for that. I I have a very large run yard. Yep, I know and, it well. Yeah, and it's it's full of it's full of basalt and lava rock. Yeah, and so they when I when I get a dog in a new dog in and I put it out there, it doesn't want to move. It's like it's walking on eggshells. <laughs> but, That's that would be worth watching. <laughs> by the by the end of their let's say they're here for two months by the end of that they will run around on that so hard and fast uh i mean you can't even tell it's the same dog so and the amazing thing is i have replaced that basalt and lava about five times now it's been oh it's been about 25 years so i've replaced it I, i guess every five years that's how much pressure is on the bottom of a dog's foot when they're running top speed across that stuff. Well, that that is eye-opening, and I'm not surprised, like I said. And and when you say you've got rock in there, you're not saying it's a rock here. The whole, the ground is covered with these rocks. They, yeah, have, they have no choice. They have to walk on them. Yep, exactly. You're listening to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden. That's Jeff Funky with Three Devils Kennel. That's where you learn more about them, threedevilskennel.com. Chucker Hunter, buddy of mine, my breeder, if you want to call it that, and I'm I'm grateful for it. Flick says hello, by the way. Oh. Um, you know, do you put anything on your dog's feet? 
I mean, at the, you know, at the beginning of the day on a hunt or anything like that, is there any treatment you do that day? I, I don't. Um, but having so many people come out here and, and hunt, you know, I get to see, um, what, you know, after one or two days of chucker hunting, they're usually in pretty bad shape. Yeah. And so for the dog that's just cut up and bruised up and, and that sort of thing, um, we'll use, we'll put on there that Watkin salve, just kind of a medicated salve. It's easy uh-huh. to, to put on there. And I have people do that. Um, that just kind of cools the feet down and takes the, some of the, some of the hurt out of it. Um, but I, I don't, I know, I know in Arizona and everybody that goes to Arizona, they have a lot of their own concoctions that, that they use. And there's two schools of thought on it. One of them is to tough, toughen the pads up. So they use an alcohol type product. And the other one is to soften the pads up. So they use more of a moisturizing type product. But, yeah. um, I, I don't think any of that stuff works or very little use other than maybe for a little comfort or infection, but they're not going to, again, no substitute. You got to run the dogs on rock to get the feet tough. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about dog training for a few minutes because I'm, you know, I'm deep into one particular aspect of it now and I don't want to be selfish, but, but let's talk with, you know, about the two priorities of my listeners. Uh, the first one is retrieving. Um, <clears throat> and here we are, two versatile hunting dog owners who are talking about something that, uh, you know, it's, it's not the uppermost item on a lot of our friends' agenda. But all of our dogs are expected to retrieve on land and water. Um, is there anything in particular that you can suggest that we we do better or do differently or do it all to help our dogs retrieve a little bit better? Well, there's yeah, there's a lot there um, that you can do, and it depends on what what your goals are and what phase of training you're talking about. But if you want to start at the beginning, I can start there. If you want, yeah. Talk about it a little bit older dog. I can talk about that. But, um, well, we, we, it's puppy season, so we got people who are you know eager to get that started. But we also have a lot, me included, talked about it earlier in the podcast. Anything correct. I can do to enhance my dog's retrieving ability. Sure. So start with a youngster, I'll, and then we'll go from there. All right, I'll get into that because I, I've I've done a lot of work on that, and I've watched a lot of different dogs and. Uh, think the system that i'll tell you will work almost all the time Um, yeah yeah first first of all i if we're gonna most of our dogs we will ultimately force fetch Mm -hmm. and that's because we're generally going to compete them or run them in a hunt test and so you need that level of control plus if you're going to do water work um you're going to want the retrieving so you can have them take a line and that sort of thing but if you want if you have a gun dog and you want it to retrieve we start with our puppies, like the, the like Flick and and the pups that you've got for me. You've been in my little my little puppy room. We start. I have a tote full of stuffed animal toys in there, and we'll start them in that room, retrieving that that toy, and we'll do that a few times uh, every day or every other day or so, and then we will move up to a like a clean, dry paint roller because it's light and fluffy and they love to grab onto that. Sure. Yeah. And then we'll graduate 
to a little canvas bumper, um, and then we will move outside. And you know, there you got distractions. So you might have to have a little light, a little light cord on the puppy. But when you come home from work or whatever you're doing, take take five or ten minutes a day, and and do that. And by the time your dog is ready to put on birds, you know, he's going to have that ingrained in him. And one key thing when you do that, when the, when the pup brings you something, don't just take it out of its mouth. Let the pup come into your, to your lap or lean against you and pet it and stroke it and tell it how good it is. And, and then gently take whatever it is that you're using out of his mouth. That's, that's kind of phase one. And then phase two after the dog has got its adult teeth and is a little bit older, you can teach the dog, anybody can teach hold and carry. Yeah. The first phase of force fetch, right? So, and it takes about two weeks to teach a dog hold and carry. And you want to be able to put a bumper in the dog's mouth and tell it fetch or hold. And, and obviously just start, with one or two seconds and you can look that stuff up on how to do it. Most, most training books have it, but work your way up to where the dog, you know, you can sit there and eat a sandwich while the dog holds the bumper. And then, then you got to get the dog moving and you got to be, because when you start moving the dog, they're going to drop the bumper. So you got to get through that process and get the dog to where you can heal them all around your place or the park or, or wherever you're at with that bumper in his mouth. And, that's what that's all 99% of gun dogs need right there. You know, uh, when they when you shoot a bird, they're going to pick it up and bring it to you because that's all they've ever done. But what you've done is you've done two things. Number one, that uh, that uh, I probably stole from you three dogs ago that ended up in many places from articles to books. Uh, the first is don't take that bumper or that toy away from a puppy early on the moment they show up. Uh, the other one that I've taken away from this discussion already is uh, you're starting at, at the back end, at the far end of the, the retrieving process. They're holding it. You want them to hold it. You want them to walk around with you or walk to you. That's the, con- the thrilling conclusion of a retrieve. And you're starting with that. And the reason is why? Because most well-bred dogs already have that prey chase drive so when you throw something they're going to go get it uh-huh. <laughs> so now you've already <laughs> that that's been given to them genetically and now you've taught them the obedience part of what you wanted them to do okay if there was a sound effect for a forehead slap you'd hear it right now because that is who to thunk it it's that and, and simple just one more note on that scott to avoid major problems I, I, you know, I've got a lot of problem dogs over the years, and I can tell you the number one, it's the same story every time. It's, it's just like whether, whether a dog's gun shy or whether, whether there's some type of problem, the story is almost always the same. And these dogs that have retrieving problems, what's usually happen is the dog is retrieving, retrieves bumpers at home, retrieve, retrieve pretty good in training, and the, the person goes wild bird hunting, they shoot a pheasant, 
The dog is bringing them the pheasant. Meanwhile, pheasants are getting up, and they want to shoot the other pheasants. Oh. And they start getting anxious, and the dog gets nervous and stops because they, that's not how the boss normally acts, right? So now, now the boss is yelling at the dog, and the, now the dog is panicked, and they drop the bird. And then either the dog gets yelled at or scolded or worst-case scenario, an e-collar, and now the dog won't retrieve anymore. So yeah. when you first, when that dog retrieves that first wild bird or any bird for that matter, but especially early in the dog's life, let him retrieve that bird, open your shotgun, get down on your knees. And, and I know some people are going to say, well, that's, I take a dominant posture with my dog, et cetera, et cetera. No, get down on your knees, let that dog hold that bird and pet that dog. I don't care if it's five minutes. Yeah. Do not take that bird away from him until he's ready to give it up. And that dog will retrieve from you from that point on. And that's, that's the one mistake to avoid. Yeah, that is a really good one. And, and, and we all get caught up in that and, you know, we will advise everybody in many ways. Uh, training doesn't stop when the season starts, but uh, we all we all are all guilty of that once in a while. You know, you you mentioned something that I would like clarification on. Uh, the reason we wait until the dog's puppy teeth are out and the adult teeth are in to start working hard on the hold is what? Well, those the the tooth buds behind the puppy teeth are very sensitive okay and you can actually move them Ooh. and affect the dog's bite mm-hmm. um the other thing is that it's very painful for the dog uh when they have their puppy teeth you know they're always teething and chewing so if you you're just going to create a negative experience if you start playing with their mouth when they're a puppy and and, and just for the record when do, when do puppy teeth start falling out and when do, have they all generally fallen out it, they usually start somewhere around four and a half months, and usually by six months, they're they're all out. Okay, good, good to know. Um, wh- what do you find? Let's uh, let's switch gears and go to the go to hunting season now. Uh, well, I guess we were with the pheasant uh, analogy you just described, but but wh- when you are um, looking for good chucker hunting territory. Are, are there some general guidelines? You're you, you're dropped down. You don't even know where you are. I've driven you there with a blindfold on. You're out. You get out of my truck. You look around, and there's a choice here, and a choice there, and a choice there. So, of all of those, which one looks the best to you, and why? <laughs> well, uh, pick the pick the stuff that you least want to hunt, and that's where the birds will be. <laughs> And I know what you mean by that, but there are people in but, the Midwest but, who who think chucker hunting is walking out on a game preserve and and and, and looking for the yellow flags. No, you got you got to have water. Uh, chucker chucker don't get you know they're not like a a, quail, a desert quail. They they have to have open water, so you have to have water. That's that's number one. Mm-hmm. Um, and escape cover. So that's where the the previous comment comes into play. They usually like to go 
down to that water in the morning and drink or in the evening and drink or both if it's hot enough. Mm-hmm. They'll do it twice a day. And then they'll work their way back up to that um, escape cover. And then, of course, um, you know, feed. But that's, I think, most of that chucker country. Depending on the time of the year, what the, what they're on, um, you know, a lot of a lot of times it's cheap grass or, or what have you. But they they dig they dig a lot of things too, and and eat lots of little roots and things like that. But but yeah, no, it's um, it's that if you it, it, especially today um, where the bird numbers are are down a, a bit, and there's probably more competition out there. Pick that that ugly nasty country and that's where you want to go yeah and my friend ben would only add to that and then walk a mile farther than everybody else that that's and that's definitely true well hold that thought i'm going to take a little break you're listening to the upland nation podcast that's jeff funky with three devils kennel we haven't even talked about uh hunt tests and trials and Jeff's experience judging and that sort of thing. We'll get back to that in just a moment right after a couple quick messages. First, um, of course, let me remind you, we have the road trip uh, feature coming up as well. I'm going to talk about feeding strategies during the hunting season. But uh, let me remind you, we're brought to you in part by Mid-Valley Clays and Shooting School. They've got Browning. Did I mention they have Browning shotguns? If they don't have the exact model or gauge that you want, there's a good chance Dave Fiedler can get it. Give them a call. Just get the number at midvalleyclays.com, especially if they're shooting for a a sub-gauge gun of one sort or another. They have a whole bunch in stock. Whether you want to shoot one of those little guys or something just, you know, a little bit, well, maybe the new Sweet 16. It's all available at midvalleyclays.com, Browning Central, sub-gauge source, number one on my list and number one on yours. All right, and uh, we are also brought to you in part by sageandbreaker.com, gun cleaning and care, uh, everything from consumables like uh, their CLP for keeping your gun clean and lubricated to uh, the stuff that you're going to carry your gun or your gear in. Hey, good news. The range bag is back, sold out. Now it's back with a vengeance. Learn more about that and everything else they've got. And watch some of the videos. They're very useful videos at sageandbreaker.com. Jeff Funky rejoins us from Nampa, Idaho, out there in the, well, if I lean to the right and hold my tongue, I can probably wave at you. Jeff, welcome back to the Upland Nation podcast. Yeah, thanks, Scott. It's, it's scary that we share the same terrain. Between here and there, there's really nothing different, is there? Not, not a lot, not a lot. A couple pieces of water, and you mentioned that. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I did a piece a long, long while back on uh, how how chucker country in large part is is bordered by uh ugly mountains and big rivers you have a couple out there i know which ones i'm talking about you do too but it doesn't always have to be that kind of water does it oh no no not at all i mean little little seeps and springs are i i i had one of my 
best hunts last year um, on one of those huge bodies of water, except uh, I had walked way up the hill and got back into one little hole, and I'd walked for uh, probably three three plus miles, and I didn't really see hardly any birds at all. And then I got down into one little spring, which you couldn't even see unless you were right on top of it. And I don't know, there was there was several hundred birds in there, and we ended up uh, having a real nice hunt on them. So. So, so you're up there walking around on that place, and, and there are other things out there. If you were to describe what you were seeing, if you had a GoPro mounted on your head, uh, what would that look like? Uh, you're walking on pretty open country with um, um, some native bunch grass, um, some cheat grass, um, um, these, um, a, a, a number of, uh, weed species, some, some, uh, maybe some Russian olive trees or some, uh, willow trees down in the, the creek bottom or the, you know, whatever drainage you're walking up. Of course, you're, you're going to be up on the ridge, not, not down in the creek, unless it's right at the beginning of season and the birds are really on the water. Um, and then, of course, you know, rock buttes and, and um, um, that's and that's that's about it right there. Yeah. You mentioned cover uh, earlier um, and the things that I think about when we talk about chucker cover are uh, big rocks, uh, rim rock or just a lot of boulders somewhere. Um, some sagebrush. Uh, and I found birds in sage, especially in windy weather. But the other thing I found uh, is that no matter how much climbing you're doing, a lot of times those birds are in the flat spots, the saddles between two ridges or the bowls, uh, you know, on, on kind of a terrace or a shelf. Anything like that that also serves as cover for them? Well, they do, they do like loafing in those, in those flat spots at times. And you mentioned sagebrush. That would have been number one on my list a few years back but we just don't we don't have it anymore I mean, it's all burned up in fire so um, very few places i hunt have sagebrush anymore and, and those that do that's you know you you're probably going to see it and hunt it and everybody else is going to see it and hunt it too because the sagebrush will hold the birds better uh, but yeah those little benches those you know those those little flat benches where they can kind of get to the edge of those yeah those they they do like loafing on those and that's more of a you know kind of a midday place to to take a look and and what about uh our behavior we're looking at a place like that let's just take that one because i'm visualizing it in my mind right now and i'll start the season there now that i think about it but um Okay, I'm looking down on this, and I'm looking down because I've already climbed all the way up, and now we're going side hill or, or at the top of the ridge. I see this spot. How are you going to approach that bowl where you think there might be birds hiding amongst the sagebrush? Yeah, any, any way that you can get something to you know block you from, from that bowl. 
So if there's a tree or a boulder or a ridge, um, I mean, they will see or hear you coming without question if you're, I mean, it's, it's not unlike hunting some, some of the big, some of the big game species. And I, I always, most of the time you don't have that luxury because yeah. you might only have one way to get there. Yep. But, um, <laughs> if, if you do have something, take advantage of it. Cause it, that's when I'll, I'll, I'll peel. Yeah. I know. I, I know I'm going to get some shooting here because I got a big, I got a big boulder in front of me and, uh, you know, I can I can have my sight, my line of sight blocked, and some of the noise blocked. I'll never forget. This was uh, we were down below still at the time, but you could see the one sentinel bird on the second tallest boulder, and we 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 saw him up there, sky you know, skylined against the uh, the the horizon, and and so we put a sneak we went all the way around the other side of that hill we went up that hill using that the only bigger boulder to hide his view of that direction where we were coming from yeah <laughs> we did get a shot <laughs> he, he, he made a mistake that day he wasn't on the highest boulder yes he exactly and and uh luckily for him it was not a fatal mistake because i i was the one shooting but uh it does work and it's it's fascinating and that's you know there are things like that that we, we just don't even think about what about the dogs here here's a problem i had last year we were again you know my dog like your dogs like almost everybody's dogs will run faster than us especially uphill so he's up there hunting that high ridge when I'm still 150 yards below him, and it would take me a half hour to get all the way up to where he is. And sure enough, he points, and we start hoofing it up there. And, and, and it's literally, it's, it's a race between us and the, the bird and the dogs. Do you ever bring your dogs in and keep them close until you get to the really birdie spots? Yeah. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. You know, that's, and that's probably something that, you know, a lot of people have a misconception about chucker hunting. I mean, there, yeah. there are, there are tactics and I've said from the beginning and, and in fact, my whole training program is developed around mistakes and, and bad <laughs> hunts that I've seen. You're welcome, and, by the way, I'm, I'm probably <laughs> the bad example. <laughs> but yeah, you can, you know you can heal a dog or we, we teach stop the shock. So I don't even have to talk, talk to my dog. I can stop them with a low level shock. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this, you, they do not need to be pushing the birds. And yes, we, we talk about having big running dogs that cover a lot of country and you need that most of the time when you're hunting, because you're not just walking into birds, but we all know, I mean, the obvious spots and, and, when and known spots, known cubbies, that sort of thing, um, or you've flushed, you know, you've flushed a bunch of group, a bunch of birds off the water, and they they ran up the hill or flew up the hill, and they're at the top. There's no need to have your dog up on top while you're spending 20 minutes or 30 minutes walking up there. Put them on heel or stop them, and then uh, get in get in position because they will have moved, and you're going to need the dog to find them anyway. But you don't need the dog finding them 20 minutes before you're going to get there. 
Amen. I'm so glad to hear that. I've been doing that more and more the last few seasons for that very reason. And it leads to the next high priority for most of us who are listening today, and that is steadiness. And, you know, I'll get a I'll get a frantic email or a phone call from somebody once a month and saying, oh, my dog, he ranges so far right and so far left and all the way up and all the way down. And then the birds all fly away. And, uh, you know, the first thing I suggest is, um, well, is the dog holding those birds or is he just running through them? Well, he's holding them, but he's, he'll only hold them for 60 seconds. And so there's a perfect argument for that whole idea of walking them at heel until you get up there. But the other thing we'd like to do is hold them for more than 60 seconds. What do you do, whether it's in training or even... Uh, You mentioned stop to shock, but let's go back to the yard and training a dog to be steady. Are there any things that you use that that might be of value to the amateurs like us? Yeah, I think so. Um, If, yeah, if you're going to hunt chucker, although we talked about, you know, putting a sneak on some birds, most of the time the dog is going to be out there two, three hundred yards and go on point because they found some birds that you didn't know were there. Yeah. So that dog is going to have to, I teach them that they can't move until I get there, yeah. which means you yeah. have to have a steady dog, which means you might as well teach it to be steady to wing shot and fall. Even though you may not hunt it steady to fall, you're going to want to teach it that so that you have that, that one or two steps, uh, higher, uh, control than what you actually need so you can take care of the dog in in challenging situations when he's excited but at home very simple to teach whoa that's one of the simpler things that we teach a dog um and i use i say i start with um when i start formally training whoa i start with i use a leather pinch collar yeah yeah. Um, and before that, though, by the way, since we were talking puppies earlier, go ahead and start teaching a gentle verbal woe. You know, stack the deck in your favor, so to speak. You know, teach the dog to woe before he goes through the door. Teach the dog to woe before you feed him. All those simple little things. Now, that's not proof. That's just kind of asking them to do that, and they get rewarded for that. But when you go to put that pinch collar on them, um, all that is is about control. You get the dog to calm down and stand still, and it's a negative reinforcement. They learn to stand still, nothing bad happens, and it's very easy to do. And once we, once we get the dog standing still, then we'll go through um, the entire process with the dog on the pinch collar and, and on the check cord. Um, that way there's no mistakes and the dog doesn't learn any bad habits. And then we'll transfer that over to the, to the shock collar, hence the, the term stop to shock. Yeah. And that's actually a misnomer. It's actually stop should be stopped to tone because when we use the shock, we use a little, a uh, very low level shock and we use the tone with it. And eventually we just lose the shock and, and, and use the tone or we're on the, I like to use both tone and shock because that way sometimes if you're on low level, like a number one, the dog can't, doesn't feel it yeah. because yeah. he's moving or whatever, but he always hears the tone. Yeah. 
I love that idea. And I just, in fact, I just finished a video on this topic. And, and I think what you're telling me is what our mutual friend Bob Ferris told me years ago. And that is the first step in all of this is, is there's a command. It's, a, it's an obedience command. And that's the way to start the whole steadiness process. Am I reading you right? Yeah, it's it's one hundred percent obedience command because the, there's no nothing in the dog's genetic makeup that's going to tell him to stop beyond the beyond the initial point. Yeah. So once you know once the point you know you work the point instinctively, obviously, and then you overlay your woe command, your verbal woe command, and and then of course by incorporating the stop to shock, you now have a generic silent long-distance way to stop the dog. And so he stopped. You have all the time in the world to puff your way up to the top of that bowl and over the edge, and you're up to him, and you're walking toward him, and he knows you're there. That's one one of the ways that he understands it's now an obedience command. Uh, You do anything, say anything, tell him to do anything or say anything uh, while you're approaching him and the birds? The, for the young dog that's, that's kind of fresh off of that training, um, we, will, we will remind them an, uh, initially after they go on point, maybe depending on when we see the dog and, or, or know that the dog is on point if we're using a tracker or whatever. Yeah. Uh, give, them a, give them a couple of seconds and then I'll go ahead and remind them right there with a, with a tone yeah. or a low level. Yeah, yeah. To, to just, hey, I'm here, and, and I care, so wait for me. Yeah. And, and then when I get up there, again, they're taught, and this is the most, of all the levels of steadiness, the most important one is that steady to the flush. They cannot move, be making decisions on self-relocating before you get up there within range. Once I get up there, I look for the birds, if, if the birds have moved on or if the dog is too far for me to locate the birds, you know, then you can, then you can relocate the dog and, and start the process all over again, except, you know, on a micro level compared yeah, to yeah. what had just occurred. I, I like, um, uh, <clears throat> I don't know if I, I made this up myself or hallucinated or what, but one way I re- remind a dog that <clears throat> I'm in the picture now, that means it's an obedience situation now is sometimes I'll actually praise a dog when he hits a point. Mm-hmm. What, mm-hmm. what do you do to reward good behavior? Not just on, on, in that situation, but what are the things that you go to when you want the dog to know he's doing a good job? Well, there's, I think, I think the hand, you know, even a, you can certainly praise a dog with your voice and it works and, and, and they know that. But they, dogs, they like nothing more than being petted. Yeah. So when when I like when I you asked about the woe training early on, uh, you know, if we someday I'm sure we'll go through that whole process. But when I stop the dog, and it it stands there, and does what I want, I'll pet it. Yeah. From from the ear down the side, and I'll pet it two or three times. And you don't. You can talk to the dog if you want, but mm-hmm. a lot of times I don't even. I don't even speak to them. I just pet them. And they, you've done your early work with your puppy. You know your hands on. 
it's always a positive, calming, relaxing thing for the dog. They like being petted. They know you're going to, you know, when you're around petting them, it's always something positive happening. So that's, that's a great way to reward the dog. And you notice I, I tend to do a lot of things without voice. And that's, you know, that's because these birds are so tuned into human voice and they'll, they'll move, they'll leave if they hear the human voice or a whistle or that's sort of Absolutely. Stealth has become really um, more important in my hunting strategy in the last three or four years. Yeah. You, you, don't, you just learn it the hard way enough times. Maybe you put two and two together and eventually you get four instead of three. Um, you're listening to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden. That's Jeff Funky with Three Devils Kennel. Yeah, learn more about his operation at threedevilskennel.com. Wire hair guy trains dogs uh, that are, I like to think, pretty darn good. He breeds dogs that are damn good. I know that from personal experience. Jeff, if, if you were to d- tell me what the most rewarding aspect of training dogs is, what, what, what would you boil it down to? Well, I'd have to, I might have to, cheat on your question and say a couple of things. There, you know, sometimes I get dogs in here that, I mean, you'd look at them and you'd, you'd think that they'll never hunt a bird. And with a little bit of patience and, and a lot of bird contact, um, they'll, they'll finish the program and they might just be something special. And, when you see a dog go make that kind of progression, um, it it is outstanding. The other part of it is, and I don't, I just don't think you can escape it. Is I've been lucky being in this business. I've met people like you. You know, you meet. I just, you just don't meet. You know, you look at this this country and our world today, and what's going on. And, you don't you don't have those kind of people in the gun dog world. You yeah. meet the greatest people in the world. So it's a lot of lifelong friendships have come from training a dog for somebody. Yeah, I was joking about it uh, down in Elko, Nevada, not four days ago, and and my wife says, "Why were you talking to those people for so long?" And I said, well, they saw the dog box, they saw the dog. Uh, turns out they have a friend who has a dog that I know their breeder, and they know my breeder. It's a small world, and it and you're absolutely right. It it beats handing out candy. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, it's a it's a lot of hard work, but it it is it is definitely rewarding. Um, what about uh, a memorable hunt uh, of recent years? You you are in I mean you're in the thick of it over there, but maybe you went woodcock hunting in New Hampshire or something. What's been a great hunt in the last few years for you? Well, um, I I have because of uh, a number. A number of factors I have stayed fairly close to home but um, I did a couple of years ago um, I did make it down to Arizona okay and you know Arizona is normally what we call the Sun City hunt right it's (laughs) you get you get out there early you take all the water that you can hunt you, you try to be done by you know by late morning 
and then maybe you'll do an evening hunt if you're if you're feeling like it. But I got down there and it it snowed, and I mean it. We had to. I set up the camper. Uh, we were in the national forest there, um, over um, uh, outside of Nogales, and it rained so hard we had to gather rocks up and build them underneath the uh camper otherwise we were we were going to wash away wow (laughs) (laughs) and so so once all of that and then it snowed on top of that and um it's a lot of fun yeah but quail in the snow well okay so finally you mentioned a bird did you actually shoot anything (laughs) yeah once once the ground you know once we got where we could get out and and do some hunting um it was it was interesting we we had you know you know how the merns will typically want to stay in the in the oaks and the and the pines and stuff um for some reason they strung out it was kind of just like a a dry wash with just some grass in it yeah and I don't know, we must have had several cubbies strung out in that. And it was like they all up and down, and you could actually shoot because you didn't have branches in your way. <laughs> and, and it was it was interesting. A uh, lot, lot of birds piled up in there, and we got a lot of good shooting. And, you know, merns are, are fun. You could shoot. Shoot. They they tend to they'll get up and you know they tend to get up and set back down and so you usually get a get a couple of cracks at them at least a particular covey and then move on but but yeah fun fun bird to hunt in the snow which you don't often get to do well it's on my bucket list and um, it ain't gonna happen this fall but it might happen the winter after that you, you know you didn't mention dog work in that whole description how do they handle a merns quail? Uh, that's one of the easiest birds for a dog to handle. Yeah. And that's, I think why they're so pop part of why they're so popular. Plus they're very, um, location oriented. The coveys tend to stay in very similar places, mm-hmm. but, um, merns will, one of the few birds that when you're hunting them, uh, they do a couple of strange things. They, a lot of times because they dig, they dig roots, um, that, and that's when they're really susceptible, and that's why people will do an evening hunt. They'll come out of the uh, the woods and the pines and, and come down into the valley floor, and they'll do digs, mm-hmm. and they'll dig for feed. And then when they're feeding, you know, like all birds, they're not, they're not quite as spooky. But merns, you'll often see them on the ground um, digging when the dog's on point. And... Um, the other thing about merns is they will they will frequently fly back at you, which <laughs> can make for some interesting shooting. <laughs> but the dog work, for some reason, um, I, I think because they don't merns don't really run well. Anything pressured enough is going to run, but but typically they don't run, and mo- almost all dogs will point them really well and very staunchly and so it's a great opportunity for for dog work without question one of the one of the better if not the funnest 
bird for pointing dogs. Well, I might have to change my schedule for this fall at this or winter. Actually, I, I would imagine you were down there towards the tail end of their season as well. Yeah, we. I typically go after we close here because they're open into the month of February. Yeah, yeah. As you know, we shut down near the end of January. So. Yep. Uh, well, um, we're getting towards the end here, and I sure would love to know um, one piece of gear, whether it's training or bird hunting gear that uh, you don't think we have in our vest or in our truck that you probably wouldn't live without? Well, you know, I one of the best chunker hunters I know, he doesn't have anything in his vest except shotgun shells. Uh. <laughs> He makes you carry it all. <laughs> Everything in my vest is is for me, you know, not yeah. not the dog. The dogs are the dogs are pretty good on their own. Uh, no, I'll tell you one thing. A lot of people don't think about that. I would put in there. It can yeah. come in real handy. Yeah. And that's a, a headlamp. Um, oh. You're the you're the expert on gear, but I have more than one occasion been out and um, found myself out too late after dark with either a lost dog ah. or something. And, um, I, I got lucky. Um, I've always kept a little headlight in my vest. And, um, two years ago, it was two years, two seasons ago, I'd lost a dog uh, right, right near dark. I think it was a young dog and I think she chased some birds and lucky enough, the headlamp was dead battery. So, I was close to the truck and I had a charged up uh, flashlight in there and I grabbed that and I went down the creek and the dog had gone down the creek and actually gotten itself in a, in a bind down there and gotten, ran a stick up underneath its collar. Oh my God. And so if I hadn't had the flashlight, um, uh, I guess if you had a tracker on, and I did not in this particular case, but um, without the flashlight, he'd have, he'd have had a hard time. Yeah, amen to that. I've got, I've got one and at least two, and uh, that's not even counting all the other lights we have in our phone and everywhere else these days. So uh, that's a good one to remember. That's Jeff Funky, 3devilskennel.com, as we learn more about him, his techniques, his breeding, his training programs and everything else including some great puppy videos by the way so if you need a fix now's the time to go get it at three devils kennel.com jeff i say this every time we talk but maybe this is the fall we finally meet somewhere on one of those big rivers between you and me <laughs> well <laughs> and actually walk around together and you know it's 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 probably going to be a terrible bird year with with all this nice warm rain and extra moisture we're having i can't imagine we're going to have much of a hatch so this might be the year to do it yeah exactly (laughs) thanks again so much i'm glad all things are going so well and you're sounding good i hope you're feeling good let's talk again soon that's jeff funky with three devils kennel and uh jeff have a great day yeah you too thanks scott take care and you don't go away because we got a lot more to come here on the Upland Nation podcast. Uh, I'll be talking about how I 
speed for performance at the, uh, well, generally at the end of the day uh, for a bunch of reasons. So stick around for that on our road trip segment. We're brought to you in part by PointerShotguns.com. You know, a couple things, and I was just reminded of this. You know, I've talked about all the new color choices you have. Uh, Case coloring now on all of their guns in the shotgun line. Nickel receivers, nickel-plated receivers, traditional bluing, and the Cerakote comes in, uh, olive drab, bronze, and gray. You've seen some of those on my videos, and you'll see more to come very soon, in fact. But one thing I I don't think I've mentioned for a while is you can get one of those side-by-sides at a manufacturer's suggested retail price of just 759 bucks, And you know what that means. That means there are guys selling it for less than that. You want to find one of those guys? Just go to pointershotguns.com and then search for nearby retailer. Pick your model. Watch some of my videos and uh, read some of the articles. But mainly take a look at the incredibly expanding line of uh, side-by-sides, over-and-unders, and and then semi-automatics. Whatever your needs in the shotgun world, pointershotguns.com is where you'll find one. And then put in some true lock chokes. I've told you before and I'll tell you again. You want to add a bird to the bag, an additional bird to your bag every trip, get some decent chokes. Choke tubes that are engineered well, that are created by folks who hunt that are made of the finest materials. Go to truelockchokes.com and find one or a set for your shotgun. They make over 2,000 different shotgun chokes, a lot of sub-gauge shotgun chokes as well. Especially new right about now for some some of the CZ and Yildiz uh, shotguns, Razzinis and Tristars, no matter what brand shotgun you're using i'll bet they have some high quality well-engineered chokes for you shop them at truelockchokes.com so you're on the road that's why it's called the road trip segment eh? but your dog won't eat well i know the feeling and if you're on a long trip that dog is losing calories, losing energy, and losing all the nutritional value day to day to day. Can't afford that, can you? No, I can't either. You know, I don't even feed in the morning. So uh, my dog Flick, is uh, he's at a 50% deficit before he even starts the hunt. So what do you do? Well... You certainly want him to eat well at the end of the day. And in the old days, the dog handlers and field trialers I know would uh, would hide some wet cat food under the dry kibble. And the dog would do anything to get to that cat food, including eat all the dry kibble in between. Uh, that's not quite the right nutritional balance for a dog, though. It's great for a cat. So instead, now I buy those little cans of wet dog food and do the same thing or mix them up. There are commercial toppers out there, probiotics like Fortiflora. Don't ask me why a dog would want to eat a whole bunch of bacteria, but eat, uh, no, we all know why. But that's a good one that tastes good to a dog. Go figure. 
Try a raw egg sometimes or a cooked egg. I'm always filching something off the hotel buffet and bringing it out to the truck for flick when I can get away with it. If you got nothing else but warm water, float his kibble in that warm water. Make a little bit of dog food soup. Whatever it takes, get your dog to eaten at least once a day and maybe a little bit more than usual. Consider supplementing as well. Uh, Fat is where dogs get most of their short-term energy, and they will need to get that on a regular basis. So uh, you might want to consider adding olive oil or butter. You know, the debate rages whether it's animal or vegetable oil, but one or the other in the right quantity, and be careful about that. Start with a little and then work your way up. Uh, That can't hurt at all. Next time I see you on the road, maybe your dog will be healthy, happy, and um, not losing weight on a day-to-day basis. And that road trip segment was brought to you by Hi-Viz Shooting Systems. See what you've been missing. That's why I'm working with them. They're helping me. Maybe they can help you. They're the designer, engineer, and manufacturer of high-quality, innovative products for shotguns. If you want to learn more about them, go to HiVizSights.com, and that's H-I-V-I-Z-S-I-G-H-T-S.com, HiVizSights.com. They've got light pipe technology, tritium fiber optic sights at the field, at the range. Let them help you like they're helping me. HiVizSights.com. Well, thanks. Jeff Funky, 3devilskennel.com. Always good to talk with you about our favorite subject, dogs, and our second favorite subject, chuckers. If you want to learn more, I just told you where, 3devilskennel.com. And thank you if you made a comment at the social platforms. Keep sharing those pictures and keep sharing your philosophy. I love to learn from you as much as I hope you learn from our guests. If you left a rating or a review, I appreciate that as well, and I thank all the sponsors who make this whole thing possible. Sageandbreaker.com, Pointershotguns.com, ProPlansport.com, MidValleyClays.com, and TrueLockChokes.com. Until we meet at the range or uh, in the field, I'll see you at FindBirdHuntingSpots.com. I'm Scott Linden. Thanks for listening. <laughs>